in a faraway world. All people deserve to be free and equal. The child is not fit to govern an empire. The forces of darkness. You can control dragons. With the dragon army at my command, I can crush the Empress. This has got to be some twisted magic experiment gone seriously wrong. Have threatened to conquer a kingdom. What can I do to stop Profion? If you can obtain the Rod of Savril, you could control red dragons. I suggest we lay low, let the whole thing blow over, come back, rob everybody. There, there's one small problem. Problem? I kind of committed us to find it. Let the blood rain from Asgard! Trust me. this task alone. You know, I love the way you track. I'll get Marina, you get the map. How you get the girl and I get a map? We gotta work out some new plans. I want them found. Do you really think you can steal my destiny? Be careful. You too. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. This week we are talking about the 2000 film Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. <laughs> this one was chosen by Johanna. Yep. <laughs> I have to throw that out there. I take no responsibility for this because last time we had Will on the show... I got a text message from his wife saying, dude, I love you. So I've watched two bad films this weekend for you. LOL. You guys have fun tomorrow. <laughs> I just want to say we had the same problem with Nat's wife, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends of people on this podcast. This is not for you. All right. So if you have to suffer <laughs> through bad films, don't blame me for that. Okay, you have to blame your own spouse for subjecting you to that. They could watch it on their own time or when you're not around. Johanna and I have gotten very good at doing that. I will say that I forced my husband to watch this because the reason I wanted to to bring us all together today to discuss this important piece of art was <laughs> because uh, when we were dating, this was probably maybe our second or third date, I show up to his apartment in Brooklyn. We're, you know, going to get ready to go out. And his laptop is sitting open. And he goes off to, you know, get water or something. And I look at the laptop and 
the page he has open is jeremyirons.net. <laughs> and the mind reels about why a grown man would be looking at jeremyirons.net. And this became a, a very strong joke at our wedding, of course, about, you know, early impressions that you have of your partner to be. And my family said, oh, but you've seen Dungeons and Dragons 2000, right? And I said, no. And they showed a clip reel. You can find a really good highlights reel on YouTube of Jeremy Irons' best moments in Dungeons and Dragons. And after seeing that, I'm like, all right, well, now I've got to see the whole thing. So thank you, Eric and Will, for uh, coming along on this journey with me. So... Gary Gygax, one of the co-creators of the game Dungeons and Dragons, started approaching major film studios in the 80s, actually, about creating a film adaptation. But at the time, they just couldn't drum up enough interest, even after getting acclaimed screenwriter slash playwright James Goldman, who wrote the screenplay for The Lion in Winter, the film starring Peter O'Toole and Catherine Hepburn and... Timothy Dalton, Anthony Hopkins. It's an amazing film and I highly recommend it. But his screenplay, sadly, isn't the one <laughs> that got made. Instead, that idea died. And the next guy to take up the mantle in 1990 was a guy named Courtney Solomon, who had no real entertainment industry experience, but he loved playing Dungeons and Dragons. So he became determined to acquire the rights. He contacted the game's publisher, at the time it was TSR, and under the guise of working on a school economics project over the next 18 months, wooed them into letting him have the rights. He was 24 at the time, and he wrote a 30-page proposal that finally convinced them to let him go ahead. He then spent the next year traveling the world, trying to come up with the money he had promised. His vision that he was pitching to everyone was that he was going to create the Star Wars of the fantasy genre, using the original trilogy from Star Wars as a template for the story arc. Wanted it to have that kind of operatic feel. Originally, Solomon was hoping that Dungeons and Dragons would be a $100 million studio project with a big name in the director's chair. Francis Ford Coppola was considered. James Cameron was briefly attached to this, but uh, he was working on Titanic at the time. And they all dropped out. So it looked like Solomon, Courtney Solomon was going to end up directing the film himself. And when producer Joel Silver came on board, he imagined that this could actually be a whole TV series. But when TSR sold Dungeons and Dragons to Wizards of the Coast, this became a non-option. So with a three and a half million dollar budget, they were looking at going direct to video. But after Solomon started filming some of the initial scenes, Joel Silver was so impressed and so psyched that he used that footage to go out and raise another $30 million to get their dreams of a theatrical release restored. At the time of its release, Dungeons and Dragons was the biggest budget independent film ever produced. <laughs> Again, we, we stretched the definition of independent quite far here in the sword and sorcery genre. You know, we will discuss the relationship between the film and the game later on. But one of the most interesting aspects of this, of course, is the casting. Uh, the film was shot in Prague, which was a heck of a lot cheaper than in the United States. And so because of this, the casting was in London, drawing in a number of interesting potential actors. 
one of the things about the casting, they very intentionally wanted the world to not be all white people. So they created some characters with that in mind. Snails was originally imagined as half black and half orc. But thank God they decided this might not send the right message. And Norda, the beautiful, hot, amazing, mysterious, cool as ice elf, went back and forth from being a black elf to being an Asian elf to being a black elf again. And the actress who ended up playing her read the script and was like, that's me. The Empress they knew needed to be a young person with maturity beyond her years. And Thora Birch had just wrapped American Beauty and was looking for a more positive character. So she was she was game for that. And the last to be cast was Jeremy Irons, who took a little convincing. So taking a little time to revisit my old friend JeremyIrons.net, looking a little bit as, at his filmography up to this point. His breakout role was in 1981 in The French Lieutenant's Woman, another fantastic film with Meryl Streep. And he did such a good job in the dual role in that film that he took on another dual role in Cronenberg's Dead Ringers, where he plays twin gynecologists, one of whom is evil and one of whom is good. You have to see this film. Well, I got to say that um, if enough people write in and say we got to do it, we'll do Dead Ringers. <laughs> but we got uh, people have to write us at GC8 podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight podcast at gmail.com. If we get enough people writing in asking for it, we will do Dead Ringers. He won Best Actor in 1990 for playing Klaus von Bülow in Reversal of Fortune. And there were a few more serious roles that followed in the early 90s. He played Kafka in Kafka. He was in a film called Damage, which is like a romantic adultery thriller. And M. Butterfly, adapted from the play. Excellent play. Film, I don't know. But his career had a real turning point when he voiced Scar in The Lion King. And everything seemed to go downhill from there. <laughs> Um, or not downhill, just like more Jeremy Irons. You know, he played Simon in Die Hard with a Vengeance and Humbert Humbert in Lolita in 1997. Man in the Iron Mask in 98, getting us closer to our sword and sorcery genre and finally Dungeons and Dragons in 2000. And now he's almost been typecast as this sort of character from here on out. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the For a long time, the staple of when you played Dungeons & Dragons was eating junk food. You'd eat junk food and play D&D. I remember when I saw this movie, someone in the audience at the end said it would have been much better if someone had just shouted out, Where's the Cheetos? So like in the middle of the film or something like that. But after we'd been playing together for a couple of decades, I remember Will started to get a little more health conscious or something. He started bringing healthier snacks to gaming, like orange sections and grapes and things like that. Like for... So halftime at a soccer game <laughs> yeah well he brought that to our DD sessions so i wanted to choose something a little healthier for snacking during this movie than your average gaming session so this week i chose a recipe for iron rations 
from the book Heroes Feast, the official Dungeons and Dragons cookbook by Kyle Newman, John Peterson, and Michael Whitwer. Mm. This is what it says in Heroes Feast. Iron rations. You won't last long anywhere in the multiverse without a few basic things. A trusty sword, a full water skin, and some iron rations. You see how we're Jeremy Irons? You see how we're Mm -hmm. like transit? Yep, 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 yep. Yeah. (laughs) I see what you're doing here. (laughs) Sometimes referred to as journey food. This staple provides essential nourishment for adventurers of all sorts from the trail tested travelers of Ancelon to the dungeon delving explorers of Flanaeus. While ingredients frequently vary depending on region, these rations tend to be lightweight, protein-packed, and preserved to last days or even weeks on the road, featuring ingredients such as cured meats, dried fruits, nuts, and cheeses with biscuits, crackers, or hardtack. Godspeed and good eating, fair adventurer. Serves for one and a quarter pounds semi-firm or firm cheese such as Manchego, Asiago, Fresco, Gruyere, Comte, Jarlsberg, Gouda, Monterey Jack, or cheddar cut into bite-sized cubes. 10 ounces hard salami, cured sausage such as chorizo, calabrese, pepperoni, soppressata, or beef or turkey jerky cut into bite-sized pieces. 12 pitted dates, dried figs, or dried apricots. One cup roasted nuts such as almonds, pecans, cashews, pistachios, or a mixture. Four handfuls wheat crackers. Four whole pieces fresh fruit such as apples, pears, bananas, oranges, or four small bunches grapes. If dining in, divide the cheese, salami, dried fruit, nuts, crackers, and fresh fruit among four plates and serve. Alternatively, if you're eating on the trail, combine all the ingredients in a large container or bag, or divide evenly among four individual containers to take with you. There is a cook's note below this, which I call the LARPer note. (laughs) If combining in a container or bag, i.e. leather pouch, uh, use dried beef or turkey jerky instead of salami to prevent the mix from becoming too moist due to the high fat content of the meat. Hmm. So there you go. The official Dungeons and Dragons version of Iron Rations, according to the book Heroes Feast, the official D&D cookbook. See, I was afraid you were going to say like, and then you just like pack it all into a ball. <laughs> No, no. The, I mean, they're barbarians, not barbarians. <laughs> this is the Dungeons and Dragons equivalent of a charcuterie board. I recommend pairing this with Great Lakes Burning River Pale Ale. We will get into why I would pair it with that when we get into what happens in this movie. Specifically what happens in the first five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, our guest this week is William Bronson again. He's going to get called away for a few minutes here, but before he leaves, I wanted to welcome him, and then he'll be chiming back in a little bit later. Welcome, Will. 
Hi, thank you. Woo. Thanks for having me. This is not any official pre-established D&D campaign setting. It's not in Greyhawk, which was Gary Gygax's official campaign setting that most early D&D players are familiar with, or Blackmore, Dave Arneson, the co-creator's uh, original campaign setting. I should mention that Dave Arneson did make a cameo in this film, but his scene was cut, which is sad because... Gygax gets all the credit all the time and nobody ever talks about Arneson. So I would have liked to have seen him here. Jeremy Irons, right from the start, he's like got a dragon that he's trying to control. And he's already over the top in the very first scene. We got to contrast his performance here and throughout this film with Frank Langella's Skeletor. <laughs> if you're a good actor and you're in what you know is a bad film, there's only a few things you can do. Either you can phone it in, do it for the paycheck, right? This is basically what we will call the Pacino. <laughs> you just phone it in and you collect the paycheck. Then there is the other option, which is to be like, okay, I know this sucks, but I'm a professional and I'm going to really take this as seriously as I would take Shakespeare. This is the Frank Langella way. We're going to call this the Langella. And then there's the irons <laughs> channeling his inner Vincent Price, where it's just like, you're just going to ham it up. You're just going to be as over the top with it as possible. And this is the route Jeremy, Jeremy Irons decides to take with Dungeons and Dragons. What's kind of interesting, though, is in the context of the film, his acting is some of the only acting that makes sense. I see what you mean about Langella's performance as Skeletor having a certain amount of believable gravitas that saved that film. I think similarly, Jeremy Irons foaming at the mouth commitment to his like undying lust for power is something that feels like you know what a child would imagine a sorcerer in D&D would be like <laughs> and it's I believed that character even in all of its insane you know scenery eating ways in a way that the other characters who were you know trying to be more believable or more realistic actually didn't fit with this universe like Marlon Wayans seem to be playing a character who was like a real person and it does not work in this film at all. In this very first scene, we see that the dragon looks pretty good for early CGI, I think. Not wonderful, but all CGI was bad 20 plus years ago. All right, I beg to disagree. I think this is one of the worst CGI dragons I've ever seen. Like possibly worse than the, like, the dragon in Shrek. Like if they had just like cut and pasted that into this film, it it might have actually worked better than these dragons. But this is something, you know, like they didn't really come up with the money they needed for a big budget film. This is not the hundred million dollar film. This is the thirty million dollar film. And one of the places where they cut corners was in the special effects. They basically they got a big discount, which, you know, I think we see how that turned out. 
Jeremy Irons fails to control this dragon in the very first scene, drops an iron grate on top of it, and its blood runs out and into the river, setting the river on fire. We get the flaming Cuyahoga River. This is why I recommend drinking Burning River Pale Ale with this. And standing on a bridge, watching this all happen, is two characters... um, Remind me of their names. <laughs> Snails. Ripley. Rip- Ridley. Ripley Ridley. Is- now, Ripley and Snails are watching this and they're discussing how, you know, mages are gonna mage. <laughs> so, you know, it's okay if the river catches on fire every now and then because you can't do anything about it. Mage is gonna mage. Now, while Julie may have complained about the racism in the other film. I want to get to the (laughs) possible racism in this film because my, at the time I was making a movie and my assistant director, Jeff Carpenter is black was like, okay, we watched this film and he was like, there's one black guy in it and they make him a thief. I think even that wouldn't have been so bad if Marlon Wayans hadn't decided to play him in the most like stereotypical minstrel. What's that? Step and fetch it. Yeah. Minstrel cliche kind of like performance. I was just like, Oh my God, really? That's how you're going to take this. Yeah. I guess that's kind of like his thing. That's well, I mean, that's kind of a Wayans family thing. It is. But you know what? Here's the thing. You guys remember Chris Tucker? I do. Yeah. He kind of did that, but he had more attitude. He did it better. If you're going to do it, you're going to be that black guy with the attitude and the craziness. Might as well be Chris Tucker. The Fifth Element character. Fifth Element, yeah. Yeah, we were just talking about that. Chris Tucker did it better if you're going to do that. Uh, I, yeah, it was very painful to watch. Of course, the other guy looked like he was up from Saved by the Bell. <laughs> and you know, acted in the same way. Like, you know, so there's just a lot here. But. Well, the thing, the thing about Chris Tucker though, is he throws on kind of almost like a drag queen spin on it. You know, <laughs> it's like, almost, which like that, that just puts it so far beyond the realm of over the top. Yeah. All right. Can we just all agree that this movie is star Wars with the Empress Padme. Thora Birch instead of instead of Amidala slash Leia and Profian <laughs> yeah. instead of Palpatine Vader. Like, can we all agree oh that God, that's yes. what this movie is? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With a little Indiana Jones thrown in the middle, right? I mean, there's... Oh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's little, it's in there. It's so in there. I think yeah. they did something pretty cruel here, which is Thora Birch is like brand new. Like she is brand new to the screen and they put her in a scene opposite Jeremy Irons and Jeremy Irons is already going over the top. And I think they were like, yeah, this will work for us because she's supposed to look naive to the whole council. And we'll, and I'm like, this is just cruel. This is like seeing someone kick a puppy because he's like acting circles around her. And it's just like, okay, I'm going to still say she is still impressive for her age and still in the top three performances in this entire movie. Just saying. That's true. She, I mean, we'll get to we'll get to Riff Raff later, but yeah, it's like, well, who is that kid? For those who may not have seen the film, Thora Birch plays an empress, and she has this staff that can control gold dragons. And 
they want to take it away from her. Jeremy Irons' character, Profion, convinces the council that she needs to give it up. And so that's where we get this whole debate in the council, which is exactly like any scene in the Imperial Senate. Yeah. That's what sets up this whole film because they find out there's another staff, actually a rod, the rod of Savril, which can control red dragons. And as soon as Profian finds out about it, he wants to get it. I think it's shortly after this that he sends his second in command, Damodar, to go talk to the head mage. And we meet our Hermione of the story. (laughs) Marina? Marina. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about Marina for a second, because we don't delve too far into actors' personal lives on the show. It's just not what we do. But this one, we got to go there. Marina is played by Zoe McClellan. Do you guys know about her deal? No. No. Okay. So she's, her latest role was NCIS New Orleans. All right. So she plays a, like this law enforcement character. That's probably what she's best known for. Ironically, she's currently on the lamp. She is currently on the lamp. She so there was a contentious custody battle, and then I guess she kidnapped her own her daughter or son or something. She was last seen in 2019. Whoa! And her last online post was in 2020. She is currently whereabouts unknown. So she's actually good at it. Yeah, she's missing right now. Wow. Wow. I mean, I mean, assuming that she didn't do something drastic, but she, you know, she's not getting caught yet. Which, I mean, you know. Which I did not expect from Hermione. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You want to talk about uh, Marina a little bit? She's (laughs) she's like an assistant in the library of wizards where snails and Ripley decide to rob. Right off the bat, she's got this whole air of superiority thing. I'm relatively new to playing D&D. So this whole like social class dynamic between the mages and everyone else has just never been part of the games that I've played. So I wanted to check with you too. Like, is this a, is this a real part of the early flavor of the games that just now in the later editions doesn't come up or like, I was, I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Like, why, why is everybody's hung up on this class thing, including Marina? I, I don't, I think this is unique to it. I don't really remember that being the standard. There's, you know, there were the mage powered, you know, theocracies or whatever, but that wasn't like a standard thing. It's just one of those tropes. I think maybe the dark sun setting had a little bit of that flavor to it because it was more sword and sorcery oriented. So, you know, but no, the short answer to your question is they just made the shit up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. That was what I suspected. I really don't think it works in the film the way they wanted it to it seems like they've invented it in order to create tension between the hero characters in the beginning and then to give their fight meaning towards the end but it (laughs) felt really contrived and you know a lot of that initial flavor comes from marina and her air of superiority over them when they're at the tavern and she makes comments like well now i see why they call common people common or (laughs) <laughs> oh, and then she was like racist towards the dwarf. Well, try to rise above your dwarfness. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that in just uh, casting it in terms of D&D, this would be 
an acceptable characterization for your character for I mean this is this is like this makes sense it's like I come to the table as a haughty you know uh you know mage and then you know I meet up with these people and I have to learn to to get along with them and and recognize them as equals perfectly good for a table you know I I not sort of rises to the level of um a movie <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> yeah but a good basic you know like what you would you might roll some dice in order to build a character this way yeah, yeah that's exactly it yeah <laughs> so she's quickly on the run along with the two thieves they meet up with the dwarf in an alleyway who is clearly our warrior fighter of the group he seems to be the only one confident about <laughs> or the only one with armor yeah for now <laughs> Uh, so, so they follow him through the sewers. Essentially, the trash smasher, right? Yes, I was really? expecting that, right? No, that comes later. That comes later. There's the, the, that's yeah, yeah. We we get that part later, but yeah, it's sort of in there because you know if you're going to steal, and you know this is a GM, steal from the best. From the best, yeah, steal from the best. So they follow him through the sewers. Eventually, make their way to a tavern. You mean the cantina scene? Yes. Sorry. Yeah, totally. Totally. All right, go yes. ahead. Sorry. I'm not going to stop with the Star Wars, but just go ahead. <laughs> I I mean, as I said in the production notes, the director just flat out was like, this is what I'm copying from. So, yeah, it's here on purpose. But then we have Snails rolls a perception check for Hot Lady at the bar <laughs> <laughs> and and goes to talk to her. And meanwhile, we have the dwarf guarding the map, which our other two characters, Ridley and Marina, have disappeared into for a little while. We don't really get to see where they go. We don't get to see inside the map world. They're just stuck there for a little while. Okay, I have to ask you guys, you movie people, did they just couldn't afford that scene? So they said, we're just going to have them explain it afterwards. Did they shoot it and it turned out terrible? What happened? Because it's like, yeah, we have a perfect example for a place for a magical scene and we can build the romance between these two. But they were just going to talk about it afterwards until I could, you know, oh yeah, that happened. I mean, that's what they did. I mean, it's like they just skipped the scene. Which scene are you talking about? They go inside the map yeah. and we... We see them a little bit on the map, like they're inside it, but then we never actually get to their point of view. We stay in the tavern instead. Yeah, I, I can't. I, uh? I'm. I'm going to say cut for time. Yeah. That's that's my <laughs> my instinct. It wasn't. It wasn't amazing, and they cut it for time. Okay, I'm going to cast this in the in, in a D and D sort of setting. It's like, okay, we're doing fun things here. You guys are just doing talking things over there. Go over there, do your talky thing. Maybe we'll, we'll and then we're going to have a combat scene here and a chase. I don't know. I mean, that's, it, it does seem like one of those things where it's like, yeah, that will work okay at the table, but not really so much here. Yeah. So I, I, so I, I don't know if you got brought this up earlier, but I believe the guy who made this movie started out as a kid in high school chasing this dream. Yeah. So this might explain a lot about the choices made. Just saying. Yes. Supposedly, like, his mom worked for the TV industry in Canada or something, and that is the most experience. He was like, I know all about producing entertainment because <laughs> of my mom. I want to slightly defend Courtney Solomon here because I think he really tried. But at this time, Dungeons and Dragons, Gary Gygax had been booted out and Lorraine Williams 
I think it was, was in charge. She is notorious within gaming circles for running Dungeons and Dragons into the ground. Oh yeah. TSR and uh, had Wizards of the Coast not swooped in and, and saved it, it might've died. She vetoed so many things he tried to do with this film, including his first choice of director, which he almost got to direct this, Francis Ford Coppola. Holy crap. Yeah. And she uh, she vetoed that. And he ended up having to direct it himself. Right? He did not want to direct this. He knew his limitations no. and chose wow. not to be the dungeon master here. Right? Wow. So... Gosh. I gotta, I gotta give him some credit here for managing to do what he did, despite what he was up against. Well, I was already giving him credit. I thought, man, you know what, you did, you made it happen. Which, you know, yeah, mad respect, but yeah, against these odds, heroic even. Yeah, there were other directors too. James Cameron, oh, what? Rennie, Rennie Harlan, Stan Winston were all attached to it at one point in time or another, um, and. <laughs> They were all objected to. She's like, no, I don't want this to succeed. No. <laughs> if it was Buck Rogers, on the other hand, sorry, I've mentioned before how Lord, Lord, she's the she's the Buck Rogers heir. So now that we're at another fight scene, one of the things that I noticed about this film is that the good guys all move very quickly and the bad guys all move very slowly. <laughs> And it's something, yes, there's there's a lot of, like, the bad guys just, like, menacingly. I mean, it's mostly Damodar, who just, like, slowly Darth Vaderly <laughs> walks towards them. And they're, like, running, running, running all over the place. And this is another scene like that. But they managed to draw the whole tavern into a giant bar fight as a cover for escaping. They escape pursued by Hot Elf from the bar. Okay. Can we talk about the armor? <laughs> yes, the armor. The armor with, as Becca put it, those would put your eye out. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the support that the armor offers. It's just extreme. and It does not look like it's actual armor. It looks like it's made out of, I don't know, foam or plastic or something. <laughs> I was going to ask. So, I mean, obviously the breastplate is the most interesting part of her armor, but I was also trying to figure out about the armor she has on her calves, like she doesn't have anything on her quads, but like lower legs. And I was trying to figure out like, is this where the armor would make sense? Is it sort of assuming the other parts of you are defended? Anyway, this was, these were the questions I asked myself while watching this film. (laughs) We can talk about plot armor when we talk about this but what i want to do is talk about D versus other role-playing games because dungeons and dragons and this is my defense of the chainmail bikini in dungeons and dragons true dungeons and dragons does not employ hit location like many role-playing games do so as long as you have some part of you armored whether that be your lower <laughs> legs or whatever that gives you a bonus to your ac your armor class that you wouldn't have without it so even a chainmail bikini gives you better armor class than no chainmail bikini, you know? So there you go. Well, and let's point out, she's not wearing a chainmail bikini. Yep. Also, and, and to answer your question directly, if it is a female character wearing armor, then no, what she's wearing and where she's wearing has nothing to do with whether it's protected or not. Almost guaranteed. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's nothing to do with it. 
you know, if if you come across an example where it does, like in say Game of Thrones, you're like, wow, that's awesome. You shouldn't have to be like impressed by it, but you are. So you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Uh, this could have been worse. You know. That's true. Definitely could have been worse. After the tavern fight, you know, they've already gone into the map. They've learned what the MacGuffin is that they're searching for. They're looking for the Eye of the Dragon. And it happens to belong to a dude they know. He's a bad dude, played by Richard O'Brien. Yes! (laughs) Yes! He's the head of the Thieves Guild. And even though he's only in one scene here, he steals this movie. Yes, he's got the best performance. I think we can all agree he wins the movie. Richard O'Brien, you know him better as Riff Raff from Rocky Horror, but he's also known really well in the UK for a show called Crystal Maze. The Crystal Maze. Do you guys know this? No. No. Okay, so going back to the dawn of television, which really started in the UK more than any place else, television was a serious matter. It's only the Americans who had like dumb game shows and stuff like that. We took it to the lowest common denominator. (laughs) Well, they caught up with us in the (laughs) 90s. And one of the shows was their version of American Gladiators that predated American Gladiators. The the Crystal Maze. Hello, Richard O'Brien at your service, your elegant escort to the Crystal Maze. Six charming companions are prepared to match their dexterity and courage against the many perplexing puzzles which lie in wait for them inside the crystal maze. And first, you must enter my maze to get, you know, the treasure or whatever. You finish the maze, you win the prize. So for UK audiences familiar with this, he's spoofing himself in this role. Mm. So there's that added oomph to this. (laughs) Okay, that's hilarious. (laughs) It also explains why this is in this film. Because I have to say, like, I was following the Star Wars rhythm and then I'm like, oh, cool. And now we're going to have like an Indiana Jones thing. Awesome. (laughs) Oh, it's total Raiders of the Lost Ark. In order to get the heart of the dragon, which is the gem that he needs in order to get to the Rod of Serville, he's got to go through this maze and face dangers. Twice in this, once before he does the maze and once after the maze, he says to Richard O'Brien's character, the head of the Thieves Guild. Honor. Haven't you ever heard of Honor Among Thieves? (laughs) I got to bring that up because that's the name of the upcoming Dungeons and Dragons film. Yeah. We were like, wait, where do Snails go? So Snails is gone. He doesn't even get to be a spectator because I guess he could have possibly been, you know, the guy goes in the maze, but no, we got to get him out of the way. The girlfriend character, Marina, the librarian, she's there and she's, she's watching how good he does. It is a really good maze. I think it's pretty, I mean, they, they did some good stunts and stuff, but, um, and, um, you know, they actually subverted some of my expectations, surprisingly, because I was sure he was going to pick up that stone and then something else bad would happen. So, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, th- they did that. And then, well, we know what happens next because we're not characters in the film. We knew what was going to happen with a guy who was the head of Thieves Guild. Yeah. He betrays them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right at the moment when Richard O'Brien is letting them know, yeah, there is no honor among thieves, not among rich thieves anyway. That is when our old friend Damodar shows up. Darth Vader like descending with with his giant shoulders and the mind flayer that's in his head. This was something like when I was watching it, I'm like, this feels like a mind flayer, but there's everything about this that's all wrong because (laughs) the mind flayer is like a creature that is hyper intelligent and 
and scary and controls you, but it seems like it had all the properties of a mind flayer, but was under Jeremy Irons's control. Right. Wanted to understand, like, is this a different creature or is it a mind flayer? Like, it's not a mind flayer. Okay. I mean, it could be like, a, you know, you know, they implant, mind flayers implant you and you can become a thrall. So maybe that's what they're inspired by. Um, we thought, I thought they was, the scenes they used it was were pretty good actually. Yeah. And it reminded me, of course, of an earworm from Wrath of Khan. Yeah. You know? Yes! <laughs> yeah. yes well here, exactly here's the thing it. had they used an actual mind flayer they would have used the mind flayer wrong because the mind flayer would have been the big bad the mind oh, flayer yeah. would have just yeah. come in taken over profi- you know and been yeah. like i'm in charge now you know so i gotta say that this is one of my big problems with this film is it has hardly any D monsters in it and when it does have D monsters it uses them wrong so like the dragons they, there aren't flocks of dragons and stuff like that. It's just not D and D and a dragon is pretty badass because a dragon's also a wizard itself, you know? And then the one other monster we get are beholders and the beholders are just kind of like guard dogs for the bad guys. Yeah. Beholders. Yeah. If anyone has played the game, at least I don't know about what, what's up with modern fifth edition because now everybody's a superhero, but I'm not going to get into my old school ways. <laughs> old man (laughs) but basically if you were to encounter a beholder in the old days that was scary as shit they were terrifying i would rather face a dragon than a beholder a beholder like one of its eye stalks could kill you one could (laughs) paralyze you one could turn you to stone like it was just like the most terrifying monster you could possibly run into Oh, also, it was, instead of being supremely confident, well, I mean, it was supremely confident in itself, but it, it, unlike the uh, dragon who's just going to lay around and like, I don't care, well, you know, you can't take me. No, they set traps everywhere. They were totally paranoid. And, oh, also, they could mind control other creatures. So they had all these minions. They are top-tier boss creatures, but not here, because whatever. <laughs> In one of the early campaigns that we were running, my son created a beholder named Jerry, who like is some, for whatever reason, has his own motivations and decided to team up with us. And so we like, we had, you know, the beginning of a battle with Jerry, the beholder, and then Jerry ended up being part of our crew for a little while. And so it was really weird because like he very intentionally was like, I'm going to subvert this really scary Ah. creature for this comical end. And then seeing it portrayed in the film, like, I'm like, that's Jerry the Beholder. (laughs) Jerry just wanted to keep an eye on you guys. The only other creatures I noticed, um, we got some meth, like they're methods, right? The, the little gray yeah. uh, winged gnome things. Yeah. I interpreted Just, them as, um, uh, he had a, uh, okay. So he did have a, uh, what do you call it? Like a, an imp, imp as yeah. a familiar, you know, sp- and that, mm. he, that was used for spying. There were some other D and D things like when, is it Ripley or Ridley? I don't know. Ridley? Ridley. Ridley. Uh, believe Ridley. it or not. I don't believe it. <laughs> when he manages to make the map work. That's a very uh, D&D thing that thieves can somehow use magic items, even though they're not magicians. Hmm. That's where I get that idea from, is from playing D&D. Um, and it does come up a little bit later, you know, when he decides to turn away from the dark side of the force. But we'll get there on that part. <laughs> Ridley himself gets injured and they take him to this elvish Christmas tree. Yes. Elf tree. Yes. Here we get the other great cameo. Tom Baker, the fourth doctor. 
Oh, I did not even recognize. Yes. I think I've mentioned before how back in the 70s and early 80s, there wasn't a lot of sci-fi fantasy on TV or anything like that. You made the best you could do. And where we lived, Doctor Who reruns were on at midnight on Saturday night. (laughs) So we would always stop the game to go watch Doctor Who. And probably for most of us, the greatest doctor that has ever been was the fourth doctor, Tom Baker. Um, So getting to see both Riff Raff and Tom Baker, I've got to say they chose their guests. They chose their special cameos wisely for this film. He's got a great line too. Like you use magic. We are part of it. Yes. Oh, well, I mean, as he explains (laughs) the force to, you know, this chosen one, yeah it's everywhere it surrounds us it penetrates us it binds the galaxy together <laughs> anyway yes so yeah he does, he's great i love that i love that they have the, the you know the elf the elf tree is very elfy and he gets a magic sword because you know i mean it's it, it he's leveling up um whereas uh his psycho character has died i thought they were going to use the classic this monster looks like it's a chest, but it's actually a mimic. But instead, they use a quicksand. Quicksand rug. Yeah, which was nice. I liked it. It was pretty cool. Yeah. That was done pretty well. There's so much more that we could unpack with this film, but we got to skip to the end because we're <laughs> running out of time. So I want to talk about the final battle. We have the TIE Fighters versus the X-Wings, basically the gold <laughs> dragons versus the red <laughs> dragons, right? Now, the one thing, the the thing the one thing the one thing that i question about this film is <laughs> why does empress savina call off the dragon attack right she's attacking with all you know and she's riding one of the dragons in this final assault on profion's evil tower barador or whatever the hell it is uh. <laughs> and then she calls off the attack and they all go back and then like minutes later she and all the dragons come back and attack again. I'm like, why did you retreat if you're right. just going to like attack a minute later? <laughs> she sees a dragon die and she's like, what have I done? And then, yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, lots of confusion. Like, did you think no dragons were going to die? <laughs> you know, I thought she was like commanding the dragons distantly. And then she calls them back. Like, I mean, almost like a coach being like, okay, regroup. Here's the new play kind of thing. And then she gets, on okay, the maybe that's what happens. But it did read more like she was like giving up and then suddenly wasn't. But right. But yeah, I was impressed that she got on the dragon. I actually didn't see that for her. <laughs> yeah, they do. They let them play dragon chess. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead, but she does. She takes care of her own business. You know, she's not uh, she's not saved by the hero. That's sort of a separate dealio. OK. We got to wrap this up, so I'm going to start asking you who did you think did it better some of these are going to be for johanna because will you haven't been with us for all of these films but first of all i'll start with will better can't we all just get along hippie is it tigra in uh fire and ice or is it empress savina at the council meeting in this oh hands down empress i thought i was impressed by i like i'm like this is really good for a 12 year old and I mean, I'm old, so I see her as 12. But yeah, I was impressed by how she did that. I thought that was pretty good. Okay, so that's one vote for for uh, Savina. Johanna, where do you fall, Tigra or Savina? 
I'm going to have to go with Savina only because that scene it has that whole, like, I come to bury Caesar not to praise him vibe that with like dueling orators. And I think she she holds her own, as Will says. All right. Two to one, because I say Tigra. She's she was less annoying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This one goes mainly to Johanna. Will I'll let you weigh in on it if you can remember the film, but. Which did it better? Conan the Destroyer. In order to get the Horn of Dagoth, they first have to get the fist-sized gem, the Heart of Ahriman, to unlock the vault. Or is it, in order to get, in this movie, to get the Rod of Servil, they first have to get the fist-sized gem, the Eye of the Dragon? Mmm. That's a tough one. Um, I'm gonna say that I... Only because I don't like the way they use the Eye of the Dragon again at the end of the film. Like, if it's supposed to be a MacGuffin to help you get another MacGuffin, then just, like, let it disappear. But instead, it comes back and has these magical powers where it's really unclear whether the friend is resurrected or they all die at the end. (laughs) But I'm going to say Conan the Destroyer. Will, do you have an opinion on this or should I skip you? Uh, you know, I don't even remember that detail of Conan, but I'm going to just say, yeah, that was a better movie overall, so it gets a it's a boat, period. All right. Again, two to one. I'm going with the Eye of the Dragon because the heart of Ahriman just didn't make any sense. The Eye of the Dragon, they actually put in the Eye of a Dragon and it opened the thing. And also, it's the whole reason we got Riff Raff in this. <laughs> so, like, Ooh, fair point. Yeah. Which had the bigger, no, Tigra seeing her dead brother or Ridley seeing snails killed? <laughs> All right, we'll start with I think, we'll start with Johanna. I think Ridley gets the the longer no. I mean, he falls to his knees. There's it's in the middle of an action scene. Like he doesn't have time for that, but he makes time. Will okay. I'm just gonna. This is just mostly just a totally slam on dude. But like, I'm gonna go with you know, you know, Tigra's better. I think her acting as a cartoon character beat his acting. But so. <laughs> I, I, I just thought, yeah, no. Um, I mean, you do what you can with what material you get, but man. Oh. What's your vote? I, I'm the tiebreaker. I'm going to say that I go with, I'm going to go with Fire and Ice because the reason is because it cuts away from the it cuts away from her no, and we see it echoing through all the caverns and stuff like that, <laughs> which is just, to me, a much bigger no. <laughs> uh, very filmmaker of you. I love it. Better talking skeleton. Roel yes. in Fire and Ice or Savril in Dungeons and Dragons. We'll start with Will. Okay, I, I, I have to say, I, I watching these two back to back, I think talking skeletons in fantasy is a win. And I'm going to say definitely, though, I actually like the Fire and Ice one better. I thought it was really magical, but I, but I like both of them. And yes, when you having your hero come across a talking cursed mage who's for blah, 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 is a good, just just do it. it. It seems to work really well. I'm with Will. I think the talking skeleton in Fire and Ice, uh, Rolil maintains a lot of her personality and i was surprised actually like i was pretty convinced she was dead and so then suddenly like oh no she's she's not exactly gone um what's kind of nice whereas here you know like there's a skeleton holding holding the rod we know he's gonna talk 
I'm going with Fire and Ice also. So uh, Fire and Ice wins this one hands down. The Anne McCaffrey Pern Award, which had better dragon riding? <laughs> the Empress Savina on the, the dragon here or Larn dragon riding in uh, or dragon hawk riding in Fire and Ice? Wow. That's hard. I'm, I'm definitely going with, with the Dungeons and Dragons because those were not dragon hawks. They were pterodactyls. No matter <laughs> what people wanted to call them, they were definitely pterodactyls. Does not count. Will? Okay, given given this, we're we're, we're talking talking Anne Caffrey. I mean, literally, she's wears gold. She's on a gold dragon, hands down. It's got to be her. Okay, yeah, absolutely. And man, that kind of makes me want to go read those again. So yeah. Okay, two to one because I'm going with Fire and Ice only because I thought that the dragon riding was one of the worst effects in this in in Dungeons and Dragons like it was so obvious that they had a close-up of her on a saddle against the green screen and then like uh, yeah yeah I just I it didn't work for me but two to one there okay better final battle Necron or Profion or you could even throw in Zusha Skeletor Thulsa Doom and Queen Terramis in this, if you wanted. But uh, which had the best final sword versus sorcerer battle? Mm, definitely going with Conan versus Thulsa Doom, just because James Earl Jones' speech at the end, you know, you are my son. <laughs> uh, that makes the final final moment pretty epic. All right, I'm just going to stick with the two most recent ones, and I'm just going to say Dark Wolf kicks ass. He, he, and when he said, when, when Necron's like, why won't you die? I mean, you know, you heard that many times before. I really felt it there. I'm like, yeah, because that's, you've killed everybody you've used your magic on, but this guy just was like, nah, man, I'm just going to shrug that off. Very epic. Love that. Well, you know, honestly, I would like to see that movie cut up into just the best parts and lose the rest of it. Okay. I'm going with Fire and Ice, and the reason isn't because Fire and Ice was so spectacular, in my opinion, but it's that the, there was, like, Deus Ex Dragonus in this, where it's like, they don't even <laughs> feed him, like, a dragon just comes down and chomps him, and then it's like, okay, well, I guess it's over. Jeremy Irons just got eaten by a dragon, so, like... So, basically, what we've got here is Fire and Ice beats out Dungeons and Dragons on most counts with one count actually going to Conan over both of them. So, <laughs> so there we go. Um, uh, that, that is who did it better. I now talking about who did what better. I got to say that the sets, the costumes, stuff like that in this movie was better than the sword and the sorcerer. And it was better than masters of the universe. So as much as I hate, to lose some geek cred for defending the Dungeons and Dragons 2000s film. <laughs> it's actually one of the better films in this genre that at least of the ones that we've seen. And I got to say that I think it gets a bad rap because on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 10% critic score and 20% audience score, which is really bad. 14 out of a hundred on Metacritic and a 3.6 out of 10 on IMDb. All those are really terrible scores. But like, 
Masters of the Universe has like twice its score. And it is not it is not half as good as Masters of the Universe. It is better than Masters of the Universe. Okay? Except Frank Langella. It is like there's no Wildor crap in this, you know? There's like unless unless you want to count snails. <laughs> but at least he's not wearing bad prosthetics while doing his goofy shit, you know? Oh, wow. Um I think that this film deserves a reappraisal and apparently the younger generation who is just been attracted to Dungeons and Dragons since critical roles, success and all of that have gone back and uh, appreciate this movie more because they don't have the baggage of knowing D and D before <laughs> that. But you know, all those other films, sword and the sorcerer and uh, master of the universe score higher than this on all these metrics and I don't think that's the case. I think overall, Courtney Solomon did the best he could with what he had. And it's, you know, it's not great. It's not a good movie, but it's not as bad as a lot of other sword and sorcery films. And definitely worth watching just for Jeremy Irons alone. <laughs> you can't understand what he's saying half the time, but his face just says it all. <laughs> I think this might actually be better than Conan the Destroyer. All right. I, I want to put this this way in a Dungeons and Dragons context. I thought all of the not main characters were good. They were good or good enough. You had the dwarf was good enough. That was a good enough dwarf. The elf was good enough. That was good enough elf. You know, your various main uh, NPCs were all either, you know, good or good enough. Your three mains were kind of terrible. And it kind of felt like a really decent dungeon master running a game for some sort of sad ass character uh, player characters. And they just got, you got to take what you can, you get the players you get and you play the game you got. And you know, um, uh, somebody usually ends up being like, you know, having main character syndrome. And that's, that was uh, Ridley, believe it or not. And then there's a guy who shows up just to kind of goof off. And that was snails. And then, uh, and I guess Marina gets to be, you know, Oh, well you can play too. Cause you know, you're like Ridley's girlfriend or something. I don't know. It's, it's, it just is like giving it the credit as a, from a game point of view. I'm like, okay. If you had just wiped out all the central characters, you could have a great movie. I mean, I would have, I probably watched that movie over and over again. I, you know, if they just took the name Dungeons and Dragons off of it, and called it something else, you know, and just made it a fantasy film that was not Dungeons and Dragons, but just a different kind of sword and sorcery film. I think it would have better ratings. Like people would rate it higher and be like, Oh, that was a pretty good sword and sorcery film. You know? Oh, yeah. yeah. It suffers from that anticipation. And when you wait all these years, Oh gosh, I'm waiting for the D and D movie. It's finally here. Uh, I, oh, now you guys, I don't know if you're ever going to get into this, but I remember the sequel, which was straight to video. It was actually much better. What? That's what I've heard. You're not the only one that has said that. Uh, generally, it it gets better critical acclaim among fandom anyway. Uh, Wrath of the something? Yeah, it was uh, Wrath of Dragon God. And it actually uses um, the main henchman. Damodar. Yeah. Yeah. Now, who? which, which Becca pointed out, she, as soon as she saw him, she's like, is that guy from like, from like Flash Gordon, he looks like because <laughs> he looks like a, a Flash Gordon villain. Um, but yeah, he his all of his menacing as a main it works a lot better. I think you know he had some good scenes, but yeah, um, I I just remember probably watching him with Eckstein, 
and thinking like, and we're like, yeah, that was what that was way better than the other one. So yeah. Okay, I think we need to wrap this up. So I want to thank our guest William Bronson for joining us. Can't wait to game with you guys again. I. I'm running a mega dungeon on Saturdays right now and I just ran it yesterday and it was interesting. (laughs) (laughs) But if you think that we are wrong or you want to weigh in on this, write us at GC eight podcast. That's letter G letter C number eight podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you thought. Please like subscribe rate us on whatever platform you get your podcasts on tell a friend about it um i want to say we release every date with an eight so the eighth the 18th and the 28th of every month so we will be back in approximately 10 days with another episode until next time this is eric this is johanna and this is will woot where's the loot (laughs) signing off Um, so yeah, uh, I was going to go somewhere else with the whole Thorar Birch, uh, Jeremy Irons thing, but I forget where it is now. So we just may as well continue trudging on. Um, (laughs) uh, hang on. I got to pull up my, uh, my plot here. Plot synopsis. It should be pretty thin actually. (laughs) 